HK. A bill to protect same-sex marriage in the United States has been given final approval by the House of Representatives. The Respect for Marriage Act also protects interracial unions. It's a huge step forward in a decades-long battle for equality. The BBC's Namir Iqbal reports. At the moment, the right to same-sex marriage is still protected nationwide due to a landmark Supreme Court ruling in 2015. But if that were to fall, the regulation of same-sex marriage would be turned over immediately to individual states, in the same way abortion rights were after the court overturned Roe v. Wade over the summer. At the time, Conservative Justice Clarence Thomas said other privacy-based rights, including same-sex marriage, could be reconsidered next. The bill managed to attract decisive bipartisan majorities in both the Senate and the House. This is likely to be one of the last significant legislative accomplishments from the Democratic House before House Republicans take over in January. The original drummer with the British punk rock group The Stranglers, Jet Black, has died aged 84. He played on hits including Golden Brown, Peaches and No More Heroes. The BBC's Mark Savage looks back on his life. With a background as a jazz drummer, Jet Black's lyrical technique set the Stranglers apart from the more basic sounds of the punk movement. Born Brian John Duffy, he was operating a fleet of ice cream vans when he formed the Stranglers in 1974, and those vans doubled as tour buses until the band hit the big time with hits like No More Heroes and Golden Brown. Golden Brown, fine attemptress. Black, who had suffered from respiratory problems since childhood, died at home on Tuesday in Wales. The Canadian singer Celine Dion has revealed she's been diagnosed with a rare neurological disorder known as stiff person syndrome. The 54-year-old told her Instagram followers the condition was causing the muscle spasms which had plagued her recently. There's no cure for the disorder, but it's treatable in most cases. You're listening to the news on RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning. It's 8.05 in Hong Kong on a Friday. I'm Andrew Work, and this is Money Talk. It is time to bring an end to hell week in the markets, but we may even have some bright spots for you. To finish strong, you need the fortification that we are serving up here today on Money Talk. If you feel the need to unburden yourself or ask a question, reach out to us via email, moneytalk at rthk.hk, Facebook, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3, or Twitter. You can tweet at us, at Money Talk Radio 3. Tech companies remain under siege as the EU's top court says Google must remove manifestly inaccurate data from search. U.S. antitrust regulators are blocking Microsoft's acquisition of Activision over essentially the distribution of one single game. The Biden administration is also blocking Facebook's acquisition of Within Inc. over a fitness app. A McKinsey report shows that high-income Chinese expect to make more and plan to spend more next year, while lower-income people see more belt tightening in their future. After two years of lockdown, loosening restrictions could mean big changes in the fortunes of transportation and tourism companies. Even Estee Lauder is expected to do better, according to Deutsche analysts, as cosmetic fortunes could rise as more people leave the house more often. We are future looking at Money Talk, and after the tough trade numbers from China we discussed yesterday, we are looking ahead to the Fed rate move, probably a hike, along with the consumer price index and producer price index numbers coming out of the U.S. 
to look ahead, we will welcome to today's show uh, Money Talk stalwart Andrew Freres, CEO at Econosis Advisory. And we have a shiny new expert analyst making her Money Talk debut. She is Jasmine Dwan, investment strategist at RBC Wealth Management. And then to close the week, we are checking in on trends and expat movements in and out of Hong Kong with the founder and CEO of Lynx Moving, Patrick O'Donnell. And speaking of moving, these radio waves are rocking and rolling with Money Talk. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, uh, people, let's have a look at those markets yesterday. The U.S. stocks put an end to a five-day losing streak. There's our first bright spot. But I wouldn't say they're tired of winning yet. The S&P was up 0.5%, the Dow Jones Industrial Average 0.3%, and the NASDAQ Composite Index up over 1%. Continuing jobless claims ticked upwards in a report yesterday, which isn't good, except that investors think it might mean a tempering of inflation, which is good. The Toronto Stock Exchange was up 0.33% as energies and metal stocks led the way to the green zone. But since I mentioned the Lulu report yesterday with our quote of the day, check the Money Talk online archives, I have to mention that report came out and beat earnings. But it also gave guidance that the holiday sales may underperform, in, uh, and that led to a 9% drop in the stock. The market is a cruel lycrocrad mistress. The pan-European stock 600 index slid 0.17%, and the FTSE 100 shed 0.23%. Uh, Only the German DAX bucked the trend, picking up 0.02%, with Infineon, Airbus, and Kidney Cleaner Fresenius leading the charge. The Hang Seng Index was the darling of the day after a rough week in Hong Kong. Relaxation of our COVID rules were well received as the market was still 3.38%, wiping out some of the week's losses. Tech led with the Hang Seng Tech Index up a joyous 6.64%, beating out the rest of Asia. Shenzhen dropped a quarter percent, and the Shanghai Composite was pretty much flat. Japan, Korea, Australia, uh, and all major stock indices were all in the baby bear zone, losing less than half a percent. Brent crude oil uh, continued in the red with a continued 1.7% drop in 24-hour trading to just over $76 a barrel, down from a high of 88 on Monday. Saudi Arabia, currently hosting Xi Jinping and regional neighbors, announced its first surplus in 10 years, but it needs oil to be over $75 for that to continue, so it may be back in the red next year. Metals were looking very shiny indeed across the board. Gold was up 0.1% and platinum up a caribou, or 0.25% if you prefer. Even better was copper's rise, 0.55%, silver up over 1.5%, and palladium day traders were all smiles as the catalytic converter component was up 4.1%. All the automobile stock indices were down, so I would love to hear your theories on palladium on our Facebook page. Bonds were up with the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond leading up 0.07 points with the Japanese 10-year bond not far behind. European currencies gained against the greenback for a second day in a row. Uh, we're on the lookout for the Fed interest rate announcement next week, and CPI numbers will be coming out, so be ready to make your move then. In Australia and Asia, only the Japanese yen lost ground at the U.S. dollar, while all others gained. But like I said on Wednesday, the yen is so far down this year, it's definitely a travel option for Hong Kongers aiming for a KFC Christmas. Bitcoin is having a bit of a bounce after diving below 17,000. Uh, it has surfaced with a 2.1% rise in the last 24 hours to get above that threshold. We'll have to watch to see if it keeps its head above 17,000 uh, waterline. Evervescent Ethereum is up 3.7%. 
And some of the other stalwarts of the top 10 by trading volume, uh, like uh, XRP, aka Ripple, Cardano, and Polygon, are all up from 2 to 4%. Looking at the Asia-Pacific markets, uh, we know Hong Kong is in for another good day with the Hang Seng Futures Index showing a potential rise of 0.5%. And those are your markets for today. All right. Uh, we are going to the experts now, and uh, we're first going to welcome our regular, uh, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, coming at us from, I believe, Europe. Andrew? Correct. Vienna. Thank you. Vienna. Fantastic. Uh, frequently number one livable city in the world. Great to have you on again. Uh, we'd also like to welcome from RBC Wealth Management. Uh, they have sent their investment strategist, uh, Jasmine Dwan, who we hope will be a regular on the show. Welcome to the show, Jasmine. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on. Um, okay, let's get into it. It's uh, been a terrible week generally, but with some upside locally at the end. But looking to the future, I wanted to start off by asking about the U.S. tech sector and their prospects broadly. Uh, the overnight had a lot of tech news. Um, a lot of it was on the legal side, not on the actual development of technology or business, though. Google's in the crosshair of EU's top court with demands that figure out how to remove manifestly false data from searches, maybe creating a whole new industry to respond, review, and block data. Um, antitrust in the U.S., I mean, it's kind of in a silly season with the FTC blocking acquisitions over video games and fitness apps for Microsoft and Facebook. Um, is the U.S. tech under in the Western world under fire, kind of like China tech has been in recent years? Is it a good bet for 2023? Um, Jasmine, what do you think? It's your first time on, so we'll let, we'll let you let rip. Well, we think it's a general trend globally for the regulators to tighten regulation on the big tech companies. And we are seeing tighter regulation on antitrust and also um, more user data protection and privacy protection. And we think the big tech companies will have the experience to deal with the regulators and they also have the capability to adapt to the changes. And in terms of the outlook for the tech sector going into next year, um, first of all, the growth stock is usually viewed as higher quality compared with value stock due to their higher long-term ROE. So um, if we if uh, typically in a recession or a GDP is below going below trend, uh, growth will uh, slightly outperform the value stocks. Okay. And at RBC Wealth Management, we expect a recession recession in the U.S. to probably arrive around mid-year next year. And then in terms of the EPS trend, currently we are seeing the uh, EPS of the growth stocks being revised down slightly um, for next year, which is a similar trend compared with the value stock. And in terms of valuation, um, the big tech firms, the tech sector in general, the valuation has come down quite a bit compared with last year, but it's still uh, slightly pricey. So we think maybe moving into the second half of the year, we will see a better um, opportunity to turn more bullish on the tech sector in general. All right. Uh, a Andrew, what do, you, what do you take from that? Uh, there are two things here. Uh, tech stocks, in particular the social media stocks and the game stocks, are falling between two legs because they are definitely are not luxuries, but they are not necessities either. And, of course, the overall trends on the retail side will always reflect what is happening 
on expected inflation, on interest rates, and of course uh, on the overall uh, situation in the labor market, which is iffy. Uh, I'm uh, quite negative on the overall prospects of the American economy going forward because I don't think they would have stopped at all. I, I do expect the next another 75 and possibly another 75. And all these leave this kind of stocks in a kind of a void. Okay, They cannot be punished in the same way that in inverted commas luxury goods would be punished, for example, purchases of cars in the case, or even in the case of United States housing, but neither, okay, uh, they will have the support of, uh, of food and discretionary retail purchases. So I don't disagree with the notion that the tech stocks, this kind of tech stocks, are not, are not going to perform well because the rest of the stock markets will not be performing well either. Okay, it's all around. So, uh, you know, we've heard a bit about the tech stocks there. I mean, uh, and I kind of led with the U.S. government and the European courts beating up on the tech stocks. But on the other hand, um, I mean, uh, some of the biggest tech companies have been given a great big gift from the government in the last few days, particularly from the Department of Defense, right? Like, is it, how, what are you thinking on that, that front? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish on defense stocks, but very bullish on defense stocks. And I'm a little bit surprised. I'm actually very happy that not much attention is being paid to it because then I would like to be, well, amongst the few people that actually did pay attention to them early on. Now, we have to be very careful here, because the tech that benefits from uh, defense spending is not uh, TikTok and uh, Metaverse and, uh, and Instagram. It is actually the companies that are making chips. And that's a completely different kettle of fish. In other words, we're talking about a very, very different uh, set of companies. So, I mean, chips, okay, but I mean, the, the, those big contracts I mentioned were, uh, let's see, Oracle, Microsoft, Google, and give me the fourth one. Uh, <laughs> and the fourth, you, and the fourth you one. You got me there, okay, you win the prize. Yeah, okay. These and I, I mean, software. these are software, these are software companies, right? These are the software companies as opposed to, to, the, pure, to the pure media and, uh, and, uh, and social media ones. So, uh, I will stand partially corrected, and it's not just tips, it's also software, but... Okay, these are, might be the same companies, but not the same companies that are involved uh, under uh, the regulatory issues that we're looking at. Mm. You can't really separate that because earnings are earnings, and if earnings are being restrained because uh, you, cannot buy the you cannot buy the competition out and therefore continue to charge higher prices than you would have normally have done. On the other hand, okay, if you're selling more software to the Pentagon, well, that's, that's good business. Okay, uh, Jasmine, well, you, you know, you're talking about looking ahead, and, and Jasmine, you, you're kind of picking the middle of next year. Did I hear that right for a recession in the U.S.? What, what are you looking for for some of the, uh, what are some of the factors that you look at, uh, some of the indicators that you look at? I know some of them are maybe the ones that are coming out next week that I mentioned, the consumer price index, producer, producer price index, or is there something else that you're looking at? Yes, we are looking. Um, we think the inflation number and the Fed meeting next week is is uh, is the key thing investors are looking at at the moment. And we think right now investors are really expecting for a slightly dovish tone from the Fed. But uh, for us, we think uh, the Fed has made their, their message very clear that they want to bring inflation under control and the terminal rate is going to be slightly higher than expected. So at RBC Wealth Management, we look for a steep 
pace for tightening in Q4 this year and even for Q1 next year. And right now we are expecting for the uh, peak rate to be 5.25% in Q1. And then um, going into se second half of the year, we think we might see some rate cut windows open as the Fed try to engineer a soft landing. So we think the Fed will fo start to focus more on its unofficial target of financial stability and will take a more cautious approach in 2023. Okay. I mean, a cautious approach may be the way to go. Probably well advised. Uh, Andrew, you, you've been through a few of these cycles, uh, you know, not that I'm picking you out for your age or anything, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, you know, people, a, couple, a few months ago, people were saying, oh, you know, remember the seventies when interest rates were like 21% and on your house and all this, but it doesn't seem like that. I mean, you, you just heard from Jasmine, they're saying, you know, in rises now, maybe cuts in the second half of the year. Are we are we being sanguine, or is the, or do you think that people are just thinking this no, is a different actually, situation? No, actually, we're not being sanguine. And once again, God, I sound like an economist, which is a horrible thing to do. <laughs> you know, every every cycle is different, and if there are some similarities, the set within which uh, these similarities uh, have to be examined have to be examined incredibly carefully. Look, in the seventies, inflation was driven primarily okay, by a strong economy and also energy prices. And it is actually, if one begins to look very carefully, where inflation was driven by and by what across the four major economies, you get such a completely different picture. So it will be absolutely insane to take lessons from the 70s. Number one, Japan doesn't have a problem with inflation. Japan was a lot more inflation. And in fact, they are getting nearly 3%, which is well above the 2% target. And they say next year it's going to go down below 2%. So Japan is not involved in inflation. China doesn't, just doesn't have any inflation problem at all. So bangos, the two biggest economies out of the four biggest economies in the world, don't have an inflation problem. And inflation in the case of the United States was partially driven by energy prices. Then it was given a big boost by food, and then it was given occasionally by big boost by strange things like the prices of second-hand cars. So all of it is very, very different. And of course, last but not least, the European Union, where the inflation is driven almost exclusively right now, as we talk, okay, by energy prices. So these are very completely different uh, uh, set of circumstances. So talking about global inflation is a non-starter. There ain't any. Okay, well, I'll tell there you. are inflations in individual countries or stroke geographical areas, but if I, want to, if I take aside half the global economy, <laughs> more or less, I'm exaggerating yeah. here, which is Japan and China, okay, and I'm left with the other two halves, I'm talking about two completely different things. Okay, good points. Uh, Jasmine, your first day on Money Talk. I hope we're going to see you again. I wore my yellow and blue RBC colors uh, shirt. So I'll give you the last word before we head out. Any, any, final, any final thoughts? We had a lot of U.S. talk. Did you want to maybe hit on China with, with the last minute? Yes. So um, in the past few weeks, we have seen uh, China moving towards a very confirmed path uh, towards open, reopening. And we think few, um, few experience we can learn from other countries in terms of reopening. Um, the first one is the recovery path is going to be bumpy and the market can be volatile. And uh, 
um, experience from Hong Kong last year, or uh, when we have a gradual reopening, shows that the surge in cases will pressure the market, and we expect we to see that also for the Chinese equities. And a second uh, experience is that the consumption recovery may take a while to play out, uh, because as cases surge, many citizens are hesitant to go out, and um, uh, and the offline shopping and restaurant dining could pick up slower than we previously expected, while online shopping and food delivery demand could pick up. And this is it's interesting that this is a situation uh, like what we have seen at the beginning of the pandemic, and also. Um, um, last year, uh, oh, actually, early this, earlier this year, uh, in Asia, where we are experiencing the Omicron wave, um, meant the consumption demand of the Asian countries actually um, slumped very significantly mm -hmm. at the beginning of the Omicron outbreak. But then it picked up also very quickly. It takes one or two months uh, to pick up to the pre-Omicron uh, wave level. Mm -hmm. So we think China is going to see that as well. All right. Well, that's good. That's our final word to our brand new guest from RBC Wealth Management, uh, Jasmine Duan. She's an investment strategist there uh, and joined, of course, also today by uh, our regular Andrew Ferris, CEO of Equinosis Advisory. Thank you very much to both. All right. The time is now 9.24 precisely. As I said it here in Hong Kong at Money Talk, uh, I'm Andrew Work, and uh, our view from India is a little bit clouded today. So instead, we are talking expat movements this morning with Patrick O'Donnell, the CEO of Links Moving. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, great to have you back on the show. You've been here before as our local expert. Um, for people who don't know, Patrick started his company, Links, in the depths of the Asian financial crisis in 1998, and uh, he nailed it. So he's still around. <laughs> has a great view on what is happening with who is leaving and who is coming to our city at the high end of the market. Patrick, uh, what is going on now? Things were kind of crazy a year ago, but uh, are things balanced out a little bit now? What, who's coming? Who's going? What's I the think, situation? I think, um, uh, you know, halfway through this year, I think we probably had a, you know, in the summer, a peak of uh, departures. Um, it is uh, slowed down now, um, but we've still got expats and locals um, uh, moving. So we're about 50% down from the, the peaks that we had earlier in the year. Okay. And, and what is the balance of that? Because I know my understanding is, uh, you know, from having you on the show before that it's, you know, pre COVID, you'd be like roughly 50, 50, but things have been kind of last year. It was a lot of, uh, it was really unbalanced. Yeah. yeah I, I think, um, you know, a lot of, um, uh, Hong Kong people have been sort of activating their BNO status. So, if you look at the numbers coming out of the UK, uh, Q3 it was 10,000 um, approvals, and I think Q4 it's dropped down to about uh, 5,000 approvals. So that, and they had 12 months to activate that. So that sort of shows shows what I'm saying: the 50% sort of drop in departures. So okay, the, uh, so you've got the departures going down. So things are normalizing a little bit. Uh, how about prices? I mean, prices were out of control. Yeah, prices are out of control. So Still. as um, um, the uh, supply chain issues have improved and uh, ocean freight prices are returning towards um, pre-COVID levels, um, there's some spikes at the moment, like Middle East um, ocean freight is high because the 
World Cup is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, generally, um, uh, ocean freights are, are going to pre-COVID levels. Okay, so I mean that that's a good thing because I remember before uh, you know people, I, I was talking yesterday about self storage and a lot of people put their goods in self storage uh, when they moved away because they couldn't believe how high the prices were and they said oh they must come down so I'll put my stuff in self storage for a while great for that business but all right, so you're saying that now prices are coming down you can get a container so things are kind of going back to normal yeah and we are seeing people that want to you know, maybe did the self-storage, um, now calling up and saying, yeah, okay, these prices are good. We now want to move the 40-foot container, the 20-foot container. We want to, we want to get these okay. shipments out. I will, so I, will, I will let my members know. <laughs> they might have some of their, their members uh, shipping out. Um, how about coming back into Hong Kong? Who is coming? Are, first of all, are people coming into Hong Kong? There's been a lot of talk about drain. Uh, are there expats moving in? I mean, are pilots starting to come back? Maybe as airline picks up, maybe the the school administrators. Like, are, are they coming? So um, initially, um, about a year ago, we were only seeing people that um, were coming back that already had a identity card. Um, they were filling that in, and we could see that on their customs uh, documents. So we had people coming back in primarily, say, from Singapore, for example, or from China. Um, we are now starting to see um, inbounds from other areas. Um, Australia is starting to come in. I think we need to realize that we are not necessarily the first dropping-off point in Asia um, anymore. Uh, from my conversations in Singapore, it seems like Singapore is getting the, the newbies to Asia, the first time in Asia people at the moment. So we haven't come back to to where we were before, where we might be the first place that an uh, expat would come to and start working in Asia. Okay. And and uh, so are these mid-level managers or are these like senior people making their first trip to Asia or is it um, both? I think uh, ourselves as an industry, we believe that um, we will see uh, younger um, uh, sort of expats coming in with sprinkling of experience and, and knowledge. Costs for companies are still quite high with um, schooling costs, accommodation costs. Um, they're not as high as they are, they are in Singapore, but um, uh, companies are still being vigilant on that. So they would rather bring in um, young, promising, uh, talented expats. And that also includes from China. So there's there's a, a number of um, expats coming in from China. Uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, Singapore. I mean, now I think it was jointly awarded highest cost city in the world for expats, along with New York, as my, my friend uh, Donovan and I were discussing the other night. Um, what about what about China? Is China still a factor in this? Is there any expat relocation moving between Hong Kong and China? Is it all like from China to Hong Kong? Or, or yeah, there really? is. I mean, it was, oh. uh, there was a big surge out this sort of summer. I think um, if you talk to a lot of the real estate people, um, there's been a lot of um, apartments rented in mid-levels um, uh, as a base. Uh, for people that wanted to still be able to um, move into China, but also do their international business. Okay, so, so it sounds like they are coming back, and maybe Hong Kong's coming back. So that's uh, some good news to finish off the week. Thank you very much to Patrick O'Donnell, CEO of Lynx Moving, here on Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, uh, people of Money Talk, uh, 
usually we'd have a quick look at the markets, but my phone is uh, deserting me at the moment. So instead, I'm just going to let you know that I'm out for next week, and then I'm back for the whole week after as the Peter Lewis Interregnum continues. knew that one was going to give me trouble. But I want you, Money Talkers, to tune in as the Fed rate announcement and the CPI numbers from the U.S. and the Producer Price Index all get discussed by James Ross and our guests next week. I want to thank Christy Lai. Uh, our producer today for helping put the show together as she does every day and also uh, Tsang Wing Mang, my man fixing all my mistakes on the soundboard uh, everybody get ready for some backhanded back chattery after the news with Janice Wong and Samantha Butler I will give you a hit of the weather before we go fine, cool in the morning uh, max temperature around 23 degrees the weekend, mainly fine with cool mornings, that sounds absolutely perfect to me uh, the current temperature is 18 degrees Celsius with 70% humidity here at Backchat. The time is now 8.31 and the news with Barry O'Rourke. The government is shortening the quarantine and isolation periods for COVID patients and their close contacts from seven days to five from today. That's if infected people return two straight days of negative rapid test results. The same applies to their close contacts. Other social distancing measures and the face, to, and the face mask mandate will remain, with health authorities stressing that the local epidemic situation remains serious. The move came one day after the loosening of COVID rules on the mainland, but the Under-Secretary for Health, Libby Lee, says it's not advisable to compare Hong Kong's measures with other places. Different places have their own conditions like the healthcare systems, the affordability in the healthcare system in admitting or treating our patients, and also the vaccination coverage rate are different. So we just simply look at the pandemic measures and compare places against places. It's not comprehensive and it's not an objective tool. So what we should do basically is just look at the local situation to judge whether the COVID pandemic is under control or not under control. We should actually adjust our measures according to the local situation. The government says it's tabling an amendment bill to the Legislative Council to streamline land development procedures. Officials say it could slash the time needed to turn plots of land into so-called spade-ready sites from six to four years. Here's Joanne Wong. The Development Bureau also says for large-scale projects, such as new development areas, the time required will be compressed from 13 years to seven. The legislative amendments cover six ordinances relating to land resumption, land acquisition, reclamation, town planning, roads and railways. Officials say one of the proposals is to conduct different land resumption procedures at the same time. The government also wants to shorten the period for the town planning board to submit draft plans to the executive council for approval after receiving feedback from the public. The administration stresses that the time for the public to submit their views will not change. But after the two-month period is over, no additional comments will be accepted. A conservationist says heritage advisers have overlooked the historical significance of a, ver- of a veranda-style shophouse in Chimsatui, which served as a spy base against the Japanese during World War II. The Antiquities Advisory Board said more evidence was needed to decide whether to upgrade the building on Nathan Road from a Grade 3 to a Grade 1 historic building, which would mean greater effort being made to preserve it. Paul Chan from Walk in Hong Kong told RTHK it would lobby board members about the building's heritage value. We are absolutely disappointed by the by the discussion. It seems that the reason that they that the AB member downgrade 
the proposed building is only merely on the point of authenticity that they plan to visit, and there's a lot of alteration inside the building, which itself may not be untrue. But the thing is, the authenticity should not be a prevailing factor. A bill to protect same-sex marriage in the United States has been given final approval by the House of Representatives. The Respect for Marriage Act also protects interracial unions. It's a huge step forward in a decades-long battle for equality. The BBC's Nomi Iqbal reports. At the moment, the right to same-sex marriage is still protected nationwide due to a landmark Supreme Court ruling in 2015. But if that were to fall, the regulation of same-sex marriage would be turned over immediately to individual states, in the same way abortion rights were after the court overturned Roe v. Wade over the summer. At the time, Conservative Justice Clarence Thomas said other privacy-based rights, including same-sex marriage, could be reconsidered next. The bill managed to attract decisive bipartisan majorities in both